Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. So, are you the type of person that likes tests? Because we're going to have a face-off between those two. I, I might be strongly typed. I might be... Uh, <laughs> I, why do we have to choose? Why, why, do, why do we have to fight over this? Can't we just all agree that they're both good? We can. And let, let's do that. <laughs> so maybe that's the episode already. Like uh, Episodes. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to... tests. It's not yeah. a competition. Just do both. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have that, that little girl's face in my head now. And like, yeah. Yep. Yep. That, that's our episode. Both? That's the episode. Yeah. I mean, I actually do want to like investigate that with you a little bit. Like, why is it? Well, so first of all, we're talking about types versus tests today. Yep. If you hadn't gathered that. Why does it have to be? a war between these two things like why why is there any notion that one would take away from the other or that mm -hmm. one would supplant the other like i find that very interesting yeah well my, my first instinct uh, to this question is like in a lot of languages you only have one right you only mm. have tests for all the languages that are dynamically typed it doesn't feel like you have t uh, types or at least they don't help you writing your code Right. In, in the way that we think about when we talk about types versus tests, at least. So, therefore, you you have to use tests, right? If you want to make sure that your code ha uh, is correct. At, at least I hope they do. God, I yes. hope they do. <laughs> so, if you don't have uh, types, then you're going to go for tests. But at some point, you're going to ask yourself the question, should we add types? Like, should we switch from JavaScript to, to TypeScript? Should we use MyPy from Python, etc.? Or like, oh, we're, we're using uh, Java or some other type language, but we don't make very good use of our types, or at least we don't use them to the effect that uh, other languages do, like Haskell and, and obviously Elm. And then uh, I think that's the part where you ask yourself the question, well, types or tests? Right. I, I think you're right. I think there can be a very strong testing culture in a lot of these communities. I think, like, you know, the Ruby community created a very strong testing culture, which was definitely like a big influence on me. The the testing culture in the Ruby on Rails community, although interestingly, which which I think is great um, and is a very strong part of that community. Interestingly enough, DHH, the creator of Rails, has had some very controversial talks now where he says TDD is dead and that it deteriorates your code quality and makes your code worse i haven't watched those talks i, I have heard of that but i haven't um seen the, the points that were raised there are some interesting talks where you know martin fowler and some of these you know pioneers of of testing practices sit down and do some video calls with dhh and try to explain it to him and essentially i i believe that um the way that dhh is testing things makes mm -hmm. things very painful. And I think that's a huge part of it is that not all tests are created equal. I think that not all types are created equal. And, and I think that that's part of the root of it is, so when what you're talking about where maybe people are sprinkling types in, maybe to a, you know, maybe they're adding some, some, something that helps add a little bit of types into an untyped language. You know, maybe adding, adding some TypeScript or some you know, something through some comments or something like Elixir that has types you can sprinkle in, but it's not really a core part of the language. Yeah, or simply avoiding primitive obsession by 
re-implementing, well, wrapping some primitives into new types. That's also a good use case, I think. Oh, that's interesting because that's, yeah, that's um, types without a compilation step. And, and you're right, that's another dimension to it. And I, I think that there can be a little bit of a sense that when you're using types in this way, when you sprinkle them in, then it's just like, maybe it feels like just another test that you're just like, hey, this is another thing that sort of checks something and it sort of gives us a little boost in confidence. But it fundamentally feels different when you have like, uh, to me, a, a sound type system or a, a sprinkling of types that sort of help you out a little bit more. Absolutely. And it, it feels more like a test where like you can test, like if I pass in a string here, it behaves this way. If I pass in undefined here, then it returns undefined or raises a, an invalid type exception or whatever. And you say, well, my, my type system, I can do that through a type. I can do that through a test. And if I've been following a really strong test-driven development practice where I am actually doing red-green refactor, then I would have built up all these test cases. But the thing is, like, did you test every possible input type? And, and Because tests only cover what you write. And types work almost in, in the opposite way. Like if you define a union type, then a union type only has something when you add something to it. Whereas a test only gives you confidence like working the other way around. Like you, you only constrain it by add it, adding to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas you only allow a possibility when you add something to a union type. Yeah. So you, you mentioned TDD, right? To go back to why is this question of types versus tests even there in the first place? There is such a thing as TDD, right? There is test-driven development. And there's a lot of articles, a lot of videos, a lot of books on it. I think mostly pushed by extreme programming, I think, uh, and agile yeah. coaches. Kent, Kent Beck sort of created the process and extreme XP was Kent Beck's sort of early agile process that he introduced the, those techniques yeah yeah so tdd is is big it's really big but uh, i think mostly originated in languages like the c style languages like c java c sharp on the other side you got the academic languages like haskell where they are big on like hey see what all the things that we can do or at least we can prevent using types and yeah don't quote me on, on any of this this is my my understanding at least and there, there's one side where they go they make code work through tests and there's another side where they say, say hey look at all these types that are so useful and i think like these two have not been melted together quite well right. there's also like just there's no word uh, there's you mentioned type-driven development in, in one of your talks but it's like there's nothing as catchy as TDD. And there's no practice that I know of that has that name of like, hey, let's uh, improve our code by changing our types. We, we call it making impossible states impossible, make illegal states unrepresentable, but nothing that has um, books with that name. Right. Yeah. I also wonder if, if the workflow is at odds where some people like to write a type and model out their types. We've talked about this process. We we both enjoy this workflow of sketching out a bunch of custom types to 
wrap our heads around a concept. And that's, in a way, that's sort of a, um, an upfront design process, in, in a sense. It, it, it can be. Now, I, it, with the caveat, it is, it is a sketch. So you can, you can throw that sketch away. And then test-driven development is more of a pull model. You don't do it upfront. You, you pull things in as needed. You use the simplest thing that could possibly work. I tend to think, you know, I, I've talked in the past about um, this concept of spikes. And to, to me, like, that's really essential in TDD is being able to do spikes because... Can you remind me what you mean with spikes exactly? Yes, a, a spike is essentially writing code that you can throw away for the purpose of learning. So the, um, the deliverable of a spike is learning, not production code. And that's important because in TDD, you always write a failing test first and then kind of pull code into existence as needed to satisfy that failing test. But sometimes you want to just explore something. And so a spike gives you a space to explore where you sort of put that discipline to the side for a second, but you're not writing production code, you're writing throwaway code. And so it allows you to just explore without being constrained by that workflow where you're doing things just in time. Yeah, you're thinking of spikes that last like a few minutes, right? Not right. spikes that last half a day or two days. Right, absolutely. So to me, um, sketching out types can be a really nice type of spike. And I do, um, mm -hmm. I do really like that workflow where, you know, I mean, I imagine you do too with not having Elm Review saying, this is an unused union type constructor for a long time where it's just sitting there collecting dust because you think you're going to use it at some point in the future, you know? So it, it is a little bit difficult to piece these two workflows together in a sense because they're one is just in time and one is a more upfront design process. Yeah. So in TDD, there's this red-green refactor cycle, mm -hmm. but I don't know of a such a popular cycle or routine that you have to do for for types like it's just like well you write the type and then do something like interesting <laughs> yeah. follow the compiler errors uh change the type again if needed uh follow the compiler errors again etc etc there there's a lot more process around tdd that is has been written down in things that are easy to teach to to beginners but not for type programming yeah yeah like see i don't have a I don't even have a term for this. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like domain modeling with types, but yeah, like what yeah. are the steps? At what point in your process do you do it? At what point in your process do you update the types? And and yeah. how do you decide how to update your types? So so let's imagine you're doing both. You're you're doing TDD. Mm -hmm. So TDD, there's red. You write a thing test. Green, mm -hmm. you you make the code work, and then you refactor. Is refactor the, the phase where you uh, change your types or is it in red is it in green it's definitely not in red i think it's in refactor but well keep in mind in in tdd i think this is a, a subtle point that's that's very important to do tdd in in a typed context a compilation error is red is a red step in tdd mm -hmm. and that's very important so you would consider changing the type to something that would oh actually just you would just consider um changing the types to be another cycle just like tests but it's not a test related cycle it's just for types potentially so like uh for example in in an untyped context you know if you're writing a 
unit test in Ruby, you you might you know you might say like you expect calling this method to return this value, and then you get a failing test because it, what does it say? It says that method doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? And what kind of thing is that? It's a runtime error, which the test runner says, oh, this test failed. Runtime error. And so you you fix that. Whereas in Elm, suddenly you have a compilation error. Things aren't working and you... so But it, but it still is read, even, even though it couldn't actually run your test. So it feels like, well, how is it a red test? It's not even running the tests yet. But the, the point is that you're you're pulling along just as much as you need. And, and so you're ensuring that you're exercising things through tests because they're coming into existence by that process where, where the test tells you, I need this thing in order to continue or in order to pass. And you're giving it the simplest thing you could to satisfy that, which means you're getting test coverage of everything, right? That's the elegance of that process. And it allows you to split work where you can work on one small slice at a time. And that's why the process works that way. So if you if you call a function in Elm, it doesn't exist. It's a compiler error. Now you have to write that function, and you can give it a debug dot to do, or you can give it a a fake value or whatever. But so you do have to. Now there are certain things that you have to do. Um, debug dot to do is a little bit different than returning nil or null, you know. And you have to be you have to work within more constraints. It feels a little more formal and, and there are certain things about working in a typed context and working in, you know, working in Java versus Elm feels very different than working in TypeScript. But if you're, if you're working in, in Elm, there are certain things that you have to do up front to just get the compiler happy. And I've, I've been uh, really interested to hear some of the, some of the things that Richard has been exploring with Rock here where he's playing around with the idea, for example, of allowing the compiler to to execute code until it gets to a point where there's a compilation issue with basically like compiling everything it can in the program, in a rock program. And then when it hits a dead end where it says there's a compiler error here, essentially that it puts a debug.todo in there for yep. you. Mm-hmm. So if it executes that in debug mode, then... It, it raises an exception. And that is very interesting for a testing workflow because it lends itself a little bit more to this just-in-time process where you don't have to do everything up front. So there's, I think there's a little bit of a push and pull with those two different mindsets. There's also like a, a concept that I've been kind of keenly following in Rock, which is the, um, you know, Rock's approach to, to tags. Like the, I, I forget the term, but these global tags that, you can reference without explicitly defining, and it infers the different mm-hmm. tags yeah. that are possible given given your usage of these named tags without you having to define up front. Here's a custom type. Here are all the variants. Yeah, if, if something returns A in one branch, B or in another branch, then it will be the result will be either A or B. Right. Well, not an either. Yes, and. If you think about that in the context of TDD, it's kind of interesting because now you can write a failing test that says, I expect this to return this uni- this variant um, without defining all of the possibilities for that variant up front. So it enables a different type of workflow. So, I mean, is that good or bad? I don't know. I, I definitely, um, 
it's it, it's very subtle. And maybe, as you say, we do need to more concretely define a process, just like TDD has this very clear, easy to teach set of steps for red green refactor. Maybe we need something similar for like TDD in a typed context. Yeah. So yeah, as to why people tend to draw these stark dividing lines between tests and TDD or tests and uh, sorry, tests and types. <laughs> I think somehow like these different mindsets are are looking at the problem of gaining confidence in your system in a different way where one is saying, you know, when we're thinking about types, we're thinking about guarantees and proofs. And when we're thinking about tests, we're thinking of specific scenarios, right? Exactly. We're exercising some specific scenarios and gaining confidence through, I don't know, through, through a type of automated check. It's less formal. It's, it feels like a less formal process of narrowing down these constraints with proofs. And somehow I feel like people get into one mindset or the other. But to me, it's like, why wouldn't like these, these two different things play two different roles? Like if I'm so if if I'm trying to to say, you know, I don't know, I have a I have a game that has die that can be a number one through six, then isn't it nice to model parts of the game through that? And, you know, yes, you want to capture the behavior of the game through through tests, because the way that things interact and the behaviors are very subtle and you you can't. You can't model that all through your types. And I know we want to, as people who love types, we want to make all states impossible through the type system, but you can't. And even if you could... Isn't that what a theorem prover is about? Like uh, languages like Coq and Agda, I think. And Idris. Idris, maybe? yeah. You, you write your, your, your code and spe specifically your types in such a way that it yeah. proves that your code does exactly what it what it is meant to that is follows some kind of specification through types i think mostly um and some implementations but not necessarily through tests that said i don't know how they work uh so right i've yeah. definitely seen walkthroughs of this type of thing where where the types are the proof like yeah and the fact that you have an executable program that fulfills that is is a proof which is pretty pretty fascinating and incredible stuff yeah in practice, you know, you want simple, easy to reason about types. And so you want the, the best tool for the job. Those types are very hard to read. And if you're trying, so it, it certainly, I think it does depend on what you're trying to model. And perhaps if you're doing something that's going to be on a Mars rover or something like that, you know, yeah, perhaps there would be an appropriate place to to use one of these like proof proof tools and you know that that's great but oftentimes like if you're writing a game then what what does what's the cost benefit of that and i think a lot of the time like the the cost of writing a type to narrow down a few basic constraints about the primitive things you're dealing with not primitive as in primitive language values, but the, the primitives of your domain to sort of clearly define the constraints of those core pieces and then having some tests that talk about how those pieces interact works very well for a cost benefit, you know? And I, I think that that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is it's like, if you can write very simple types 
And then you can write very simple tests. It, it, you don't have to write tests that exercise every possible type you could throw at it and that it um, fulfills these contracts. And so they do their job very well when you, when you just use types in a simple way, getting the sort of 80-20, like, you know, 80, the... What, what is yeah, 80 the, I think it's also called the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, which oh, is... 80 you, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do the um, the twenty percent of the work that gives you eighty percent of the benefit, because it's diminishing returns at a certain point. And I I think that's really the case with with types. And I I think if you're if you're saying oh we don't need types we have tests, I think you also sort of get to to an eighty twenty where you're getting diminishing returns for your tests when types would be the best tool for that. So in, in languages like Coq and Agda Idris where you, you prove something through the types, the types are really hard to read. And I do wonder, like, how do you test that those types are proving the right thing as well? Right. Because right. if they're complex, then it's some sort of code, right? And you want to test code. So how, how exactly. do you test that? I'm sure they have some techniques or tools for that, but yeah. Yes, right. And, and I, I think it's it's easy to get into the headspace of trying to like like well if it doesn't give me a hundred percent guarantee or how do i prove this but it, but i think getting practical you say like listen how easy it is, is it to reason about the correctness of this system how easy is it to spot a failure how easy is it to fit the behavior of the system into my head with these pieces and if you have some very simple types That's a, a great tool for reasoning about your system. And that's like a, a tool that really lets you work confidently with, with maintaining some code and, and updating the constraints as they change. Tests are very good for looking at what is the current behavior. And if something goes wrong or if you're adding some new behavior, you, you write some tests to exercise that and, and make sure it does what you expect. And so mm -hmm. I think it's, it's using the right tool for the right job. Also, I think that so actually, uh, I, I suspect we may have both watched this this talk in preparation for it, Types versus Tests. There was one at a Scala conference that I oh. watched. What is the name of the talk? Because I'm not sure. So I watched this talk called Types versus Tests, an Epic Battle by <laughs> Amanda Laucher. Yeah, me too. Like, okay, cool. Yeah, I had a feeling um, that we both watched that one. It was very oh. interesting. Yeah, I wanted to watch a talk that uh, you probably wouldn't watch. So. <laughs> uh, and we watched the same one. Yeah, that one, that one was very good. Yeah. Which surprised me a bit because it was from someone who is from that TDD world, from that Agile world, at, at a SCADA conference still. They're like, yeah, she, she does a good job joining those two, two worlds together. I thought so too. Somewhat, somewhat contradicting what I said previously, where I said that those worlds didn't mingle well they do mingle but not as much as i would like them to be right absolutely which which i think is why it stood out as a really good talk too because it doesn't get discussed that often it usually people are in one space or the other and and unfortunately you know a lot of people who are very focused on talking about types don't talk about craftsmanship principles and test-driven development as much and vice versa but they really pair very nicely together. I have to admit, like whenever I hear about craftsmanship coding, I mm -hmm. always, yeah, hear that uh, in, in back of my mind, it means TDD, it means agile practices, uh, tiny steps. 
uh, refactoring, but it doesn't mean types at all. So, right. Do you have the same feeling as well, or? Yeah, I would say I associate it with um, types not necessarily being a core piece of that. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I mean, in in the most common practice, it's yeah. I, I agree. So, so, so one thing that makes me think is also like you can do TBD in every language. Uh, as, as soon as you have a test framework, you can do it in any language. You might not have property-based testing. You might not have advanced uh, levels testing like end-to-end -end testing. But types, you can only do that in some languages, right? Yes. So yeah. it, it, it makes sense that there's a lot, of, a lot more uh, writing about TDD than about types, especially since most popular languages are not all that big into uh, defining your own custom types and having custom, uh, opaque types, stuff like that. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and a lot of them, I mean, I learned a ton about test-driven development from, from Kent Beck's excellent, excellent book, Test-Driven Development by Example. It's a very nice, simple little book. And from what I recall, it used Java for all the examples. And, you know, the thing is, like, when you're using Java for the examples, you're not using it as a, as a tool for giving you guarantees, right? Because you, you have, you still have casting and all these possibilities to, to circumvent the type system. So it's not really operating in the same way where you're able to rely on it. And also it doesn't have the features that we love so much, like some types, which they are coming. Yes. But... Right. But in the time when it was written, it, that, that certainly um, wasn't a feature and it certainly wasn't the, the idiomatic approach to solving problems that would have been used in a, in a book like Test Driven Development, by example. So one thing that, that, this, um, that this types versus tests talk, I felt missed. It, it did a very good job covering a, a, lot, of, like, a lot of the core things that, that I wanted to, to hit upon in our discussion. But one of the things that it didn't talk about that I think is very important is how types and tests fit together and work in tandem, which is our favorite topic, which if you're playing Elm Radio Bingo, you can uh, go ahead and cross off that square. Opaque types. Ah, I was going to go for Elm Review. Ah, <laughs> I lost. <laughs> I'd put that on our Elm Review Bingo card as well. It's a solid, solid choice. So what I mean by, by these two things working together is I think that let's say you write a unit test for a function and, you know, I don't know. I mean, my, you know, one of my go-to opaque type, opaque type examples, you have a function that checks the validity of a username. Okay. So now you have, you know, is valid username returns a bool and okay, you've used test driven development for that. And it's fully tested code, right? Mm -hmm. It's fully tested code that takes a string and gives you a Boolean. Well, so, so you have a function or a method that says this username is Valid, right? Yep. And it's fully tested, 100% done through TDD. But is it used appropriately everywhere in the code base? Every, is every string that does truly represent a username invoke that function to, to make sure it checks that bool? Well, of course, we're, we are good coders, <laughs> right? We'll never forget to do that. So to me, this is so, so core to how I think about craftsmanship principles is being able to sort of narrow down my, my thinking about something into a nice, neat, well-tested 
concept where the knowledge lives in one place. So I'm able to um, not only organize that logic into a single place, which, you know, don't repeat yourself. It's about knowledge. It's not about not repeating code. It's about not repeating knowledge. There's a single authoritative place where any piece of knowledge lives. Well, an opaque type is a great way to represent that single authoritative place because, well, you can't create it outside of that thing. So it is authoritative because it's the only way you can create a username. And so you use that username type and, you know, sure, you could still pass strings somewhere, but it gives you more confidence that you're using that well-tested unit in the appropriate places. So to me, types and tests work very well together. And in, mm -hmm. in this types versus test talk, they were kind of um, discussing this in the talk and a little bit in the Q&A as well. They were talking about, you know, how do you like, you know, that you can, you can make impossible states impossible through your type system, but certain things you can't represent that in your type system. But then like you, you have this opaque type, you test that opaque type, and now that gives you more guarantees. So they, they work together, you know? So yeah, I think we do, we do need more formal write-ups about these processes. As you, as you hinted at, I, I really, I think, I think you're spot on with that, that we need some type driven development. Some, um, what was the name of the Ken Beck's book? Test driven development by example. Right. Okay. Well, type driven development by example. That's what we need. Absolutely. Or, you know, test driven development aided by test, uh, test driven development aided by types by example, maybe, you know, but. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, now it seems like types are less good than tests. Like, <laughs> I'm a, come on, like tests are not better than types. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's important to understand like when are types the good the good abstraction and when are tests the the right tool. So the, the way I, I tend to see so maybe first let's talk about usually when people say well you don't need well whenever people say that uh, you don't need tests what they mean is uh, that you don't need to write as many tests. Uh, when you have type, uh, when you have types, right? So, for instance, um, the the common examples. Well, what if the argument that you pass to is valid username is undefined, or is nil, or whatever? Well, you don't need to to check for those if your types say that uh, it needs to be a valid. Uh, it needs to be a non-null string or whatever, and you also don't need to check that this uh, the this function returns anything else than a boolean. So, the, the when you have types. It very much limits the wiggle room um, that uh, a function has, like between its inputs and its outputs. The inputs say what is uh, available to the function, and the output is what is available to return. Like in the uh, this enormous space of potential implementation of potential values to return and to get, what what can you do? So. Whenever you add t types, you constrain what you can write, what you can receive, what you can get, what you can write as the implementation. And a thing that's when people who write a lot of a lot of types but don't not a lot of tests, what they think of, and that's partially my case because I don't write that many tests in practice, is that because there is so little wiggle room if you have good types that you don't really need to test those. Like, for instance, if you have um, an enum of four things as an input and you return a Boolean 
uh, as an output, then you have very few implementation possibilities. I think you have like eight or something or that. You have very few. So it's going to be hard for me to make a mistake here. I'm, I'm going to make some uh, at some point probably. And therefore it's still useful to have tests. But the wiggle room is a lot less than if we wrote it in a dynamic language where the inputs and the outputs are any value there. They can be undefined, uh, they can be JSON, functions, whatever. So just restricting the wiggle room that you have to something very tiny makes it much more likely that you're going to have the correct implementation or a correct implementation or somewhat correct ter. Right, right. And, and, and people put a lot of thought and effort into those practices of using types very well. And then they, they focus on, on that one thing. And then, oh, it turns out like, well, do I really need a test for this workflow? And I think, um, I mean, I don't know. If you take the, the username example, like testing a valid username, like types are probably not a great tool for that. Like, sure, you could say that, like, these are the valid characters and this first character can be this and the second character and characters after can be that. But like, it's probably not necessary. But tests are a very good tool for that. And mm -hmm. to me, like, at the core of this is the habits to to build in these practices and also like not all tests are created equal. So I think if we like dig into it, I think a lot of people view, I, I think a lot of people view types as a hindrance to their productivity. Which they can be depending on the language and tools that you have at your disposal. Right. And depending on how you use them. Right. And, and a lot of people's experiences with Java where they're not getting strong guarantees you know probably from a time when optional wasn't really baked into it and they're getting null exceptions all over the place and array index out of bounds runtime exceptions casting exceptions so not all not all type systems are created equal but also if you're just using strings everywhere in your type system and not really leveraging types then it's going to feel like nothing but a burden it's going to feel like nothing but this thing that's forcing me to implement an abstract you know, instance of this factory. And so I have to make like an anonymous class to satisfy this thing. And okay, great. What safety did that give me? Yeah, it's only going to give you limited benefits. Because if everything is notable anyway, then you're still going to end up with the biggest problem is that everything is notable and you have to check for null everywhere, which, I mean, you're going to have to write tests for that. Right. And and if you still are using primitive types all over the place and you're not really making impossible states impossible and you're not really, you know, using, you know, union types or don't have that functionality in, in your language. So I think that's a lot of people's experience with it. So the way that you use your type system matters a lot, um, as I think a lot of our listeners will, you know, will be preaching to the choir there. But similarly, I think the way that you write tests matters a lot. And I think that... Um, you know, in my opinion, after watching Kent Beck or um, what, watching DHH Creative Rails talk about TDD is dead and watching these sort of TDD experts talking him through it and asking, why do you think TDD is dead and how do you practice TDD? What I gathered from, from all of that is the way he practices TDD is very focused on doing a lot of integration 
tests sort of these in-between tests. They're not mm-hmm. end-to-end yeah. tests. They're not unit tests that are exercising one small unit of behavior. They're integration tests. And and from my experience in my Rails development days, there is a lot of that in, in testing culture in, in the Rails community and, you know, these controller tests. So it's not really giving you confidence that your full system works end-to-end because it's not opening up a browser and running through a user workflow and giving you confidence end-to-end. But it's not thoroughly exercising all of the possible ways to, to call one method either. So it gets very messy and you, you're doing a lot of mocking and stubbing, creating a lot of fake values. And oh. that <laughs> is like very important because it, you, you're, you're, not, you're, you're testing your mocks. You're testing your fake value producers, not your system under test. And so when you, um, when you change something and, and nothing breaks, well, oh, I guess I was mocking that, right? And, and what happens is your tests become extremely coupled to your code, but don't actually give you confidence about it. So it's the worst of both worlds. And I think that's why DHH had this whole Rails is dead thing, besides just being a provocateur and liking to say controversial <laughs> things. Yeah. W- were you pulling your hair out when you when you were watching the oh, talk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it was just very on brand. And it's like, all right. I, you know, it, pe- I think people are going to continue to think what they think about testing. And, and if they already thought that testing was a waste of time, then that will reinforce that opinion. And if they thought TDD was great, then that will reinforce that opinion and, and have them think about why they disagree. But I, I think it's an interesting conversation. And to me, the takeaway is it really matters how you write your tests. And uh, now you can't mock an Elm particularly, but you, you can write good, good or bad tests, useful or, or not useful tests. Yeah. If you write Elm program tests, you have to mock somehow. Right. 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 When, but you're not going to have those uh, spies or in the exact same kind of mocks. Like you, you're going to have test data. You're not going to have mocks. And like, I actually, you can't even do white box testing in Elm, right? So black box is, um, testing is when you check, uh, you give inputs and you make assertions on the output. But can you do white box? I, I, I'd say not. You can influence the internals by passing inputs. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on how, like with Elm, a lot of the time, I mean, you know, when I, when I was doing technical coaching, you know, in, in non-Elm companies, like I was um, spending a lot of my time trying to teach people to, to follow these practices that Elm forces you to do, like uh, dependency inversion and, you know, dependency injection. And, and, you know, so instead of like mocking things, you can pass in the value so you have control over it. Instead of like mocking time.now or whatever, right? You, uh, you pass in the time. And in Elm, you have to do that because you can't just go get the side effect. So you don't have to mock the current date because you have to have that as an explicit dependency as, as an argument with, with dependency injection, essentially. So Elm does help with a lot of those practices. But nonetheless, like you can write useful tests or not. You can... And, you can scope things into meaningful units or not. And I think the way you organize your code and extract things into modules and opaque types is a big part of that. The, the way I see it, when I, whenever I think of TDD, I mostly think of unit tests because that's what people push towards. That's uh, where you will see the most benefits. Um, and integration tests are always a 
a bit slower and a bit more clunky, especially if you need to do mocks and spies and, and those kind of things, which we can't do, you know, as you just said. But also integration tests is like about connecting multiple things, right? And that's actually where types shine. So in a unit test, like if you're not going to, uh, you're going to give some input and going to assert something on the output. If the tests are not exactly what is expected, that might not be too much of a problem. I, I mean, it, it, your tests are going to cover that. But types are contracts, right? They, they say, well, this thing takes this as an input and it will return this type as an output. And then that can only be used in specific ways, just like you said with the username and other non-primitive types. And well, whoever is going to use those types um, as inputs or outputs, they're going to have to do it in a correct way because the type checker will validate that for you. But that's going to be something that is very hard for your for unit tests to to verify, right? You, you're going to have to write multiple uh, unit tests, you're going to have to write a lot of scenarios and to figure out where, where or when it fails to do it correctly, which you're going to fix. But basically you're going to do like test based on, yeah, scrap that, scrap the last part. So yeah, whenever you, I think about integration tests, I feel like that's where a, a uh, types are better suited or view the whole thing as a unit test. So unit tests all the way and for big things, still considered as a, unit, as a unit test, but the implementation inside, that's where types shine. Right. I, I totally agree. I think that, I think that fitting pieces together wiring, like, and, and, in my Ruby on Rails development days, I thought a lot about wiring. And w with Elm, you just let the compiler think about it, you know? I mean, you think about designing how the pieces will fit together, and then you trust it once you've sort of designed how you want that to work. And But you have to think about that in your testing process. And as you say, with like writing mocks and things as you're writing integration tests in, in your Rails applications. And it's it's very challenging and, and, and it, it takes a lot to gain confidence through test-driven development about your wiring, whereas it's it's trivial in a in a type system. That's that's what type systems really shine at. Like they're so good at doing that. And yes, they're good at making impossible states impossible too. And that that's great. But the the wiring, it's just you you can't go wrong. And if your wiring is just this function takes a string, this function takes an int. You're you're missing out on what you can do with your type system, but yeah, a lot of these integration tests go away. But I think the the way that you organize your code is very important. So just like I think the cost of change is very important to this types versus tests because I think a lot of people will feel that like they'll feel that tests slow them down, they'll feel that types slow them down, or you know, one or both, whichever they hate more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> possibly they'll feel that both slow them down um but if so maybe they're not listening to elm radio but i i think the way that you write your tests will um will affect how how it slows you down or not and if you're you can write elm code in a way where things get very tangled up with each other and it feels like making a change you have to change all of these tests and throw things away but if you are kind of organizing things into nice encapsulated opaque types that have well-defined areas of knowledge and responsibility. And you, you pull out these clean leaf nodes that are responsible for this one area of work, then 
things aren't coupled in an awkward way, right? So you can't, you can't separate the conversation about how you couple your system with the maintainability of your, your types and tests. And so it's essential. So I would, I would encourage people, if they are feeling like either types or tests are slowing them down, think about how, um, like, are you leveraging them to maximum effect? Like, are you actually getting something meaningful and useful out of them? And are you, are you coupling them that in a way that makes the cost of change difficult? Just like DHH is talking about a lot of tests with tons of mocks that are not really giving a lot of confidence and, and coupling all these things to the internals of the system. Well, you can kind of couple things in a, in a way where your, your tests, um, are very hard to maintain and change in your Elm application. So the way you couple and organize your code is, is essential for that. So maybe let's talk about when you need to test. Like, so types are going to check for things that are very uh, general, very generic. They're never going to be very detailed. They're never going to provide a lot of detail. So if you say that a function returns an integer, well, the type checker will prove that it will always be an integer, otherwise it won't compile, but it doesn't tell you which one it will be. So that's when you want a test. You want to test it if you want to assert that uh, in a specific scenario or if you use property-based testing, uh, that it will always have some, that it either has a specific value or is constrained by a specific rule. So you're gonna, basically you're going to want to write tests whenever you can't prove anything by the type system. So in my mind, there are at least two things for that. When, one, when you want to verify specific values among the wiggle room that you have, right? And two, whenever you want to prove things, things that can't be proven by the type system, including side effects, when your type system doesn't convey the information of uh, which side effects are, are returned, then you're going to have to write a test for that. And also, if your type system is unsound, it's giving you some guarantees, but not everything, like everything is notable, like in Java, then you will want to ha have tests that prove that things are never null, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's mostly for those things. So it's when you have, you want to test specific values, when you want to test side effects, and when you want to test things that are, can't be proved by your type system. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, types to me are all about constraints. They um, describe and enforce constraints and tests are about behavior. And there's an interplay. Um, there are times when you'll want to capture a constraint in a in a test because it's very hard to express in a type. But uh, but yeah, a lot of the time it's you know you you describe your constraints and your types, and then you you test the behavior in the tests. Like that, you just can't test the behavior with types. Like <laughs> so, yeah. I think to me, it's it's your business logic, right? Like it's and now I'm I'm usually not going to be. Um, writing view tests because Martin Janicek recently gave an Elm online talk where he was showcasing how he uses Elm book to do this sort of storybook driven development style of um, writing view components in his, in his Elm app. And, um, and I thought that was very cool for like, to me, that's pretty sufficient for, for testing visual elements. And, and I don't find much value to, um, to writing, like unit level tests for that. I think it's very valuable to have end-to-end -end tests, not integration tests that are 
faking things out, but end-to-end -end tests that are actually running through opening a browser, Cypress tests, things like that, to give you confidence in the system. Uh, sorry, what if you have view code that uh, has quite a bit of logic that returns HTML? Great point. So in, in cases like that, I would tend to, to already want that as a separate testable unit that is invoked by my view logic, but not spread out all over in my view code. Okay, so it's kind of like uh, wrap early, unwrap late. Mm -hmm. you, you unwrap to HTML as late as possible, but whatever logic you have, you want to do it with specific types or maybe even just primitives, but not HTML, which is hard mm -hmm. to, to test. Yeah, and, and like to me, I want to split out my business logic from my view logic. And it, templating, it, to me, is like if I'm writing a test that's testing my templating, it's just, it's just writing the same thing twice and, it, and coupling me in a way where I change this thing, this thing breaks. It just feels like brittle tests. It, it doesn't feel valuable to me. It doesn't feel like it's preventing me from causing bugs. It just feels like it's slowing me down from making changes in the system and making it more frustrating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was mostly thinking of like if you have branching conditionals in your view code. Right, right. So so like, for example, if there's like, you know, I don't know, you, you could have like, how do you render, you, you could have some complex logic for how you, you render names based on, you know, if there's a, uh, if it's a guest login, or if there's a last name, or if there's a username, or you, you know, you pick this display name to use, or, you know, you, you could have complex logic with lots of branching and lots of complexity that feels like business logic, right? The, the key thing is it feels like business logic, then I'm going to want to encapsulate that and invoke that from my, my view template. But I want my view template to be kind of dumb, and I don't really want to test that through unit tests. But I do want to unit test my business logic and and i think this is really essential is it's like it's just a skill and a habit it's kind of hard to learn without just sitting next to somebody who's done this a lot and probably sat next to somebody else who had done it a lot and, you know you go up the chain enough and then there's probably somebody that sat next to kent beck and did it a lot and kent beck <laughs> was the one who came up with this discipline right but that's kind of like the easiest way to learn how, how to decide what to separate out is business logic. Like it's this design sense that you, it's hard to, to just learn naturally by thinking it through. But, but to me, that's how I think about it. Business logic, I want to encapsulate that out somewhere as a unit and then test that unit. So, so unit testing, figuring out what the units are is very hard. Mm. Okay. I'm starting to think we're getting at the point where we need to answer the question. <laughs> Dylan. Types or tests? Tweps. God, God damn it. <laughs> I actually don't even know. Are we allowed to swear on this radio? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we ever have. <laughs> that elicited a very strong response. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let's, let's imagine you only had the choice between writing tests or writing types. What would you prefer? You're in, all I have to say is, if you had modeled your constraints better in your possible responses, then I wouldn't have been able to respond that way. Yeah, but everything you, you, you say is just stringly typed. <laughs> That's true. 
our whole podcast is I'm working against your interface and you only <laughs> return strings. <laughs> Maybe strings? Maybe strings, because you could keep silent. Exactly. It's it's hard for I mean I I genuinely can't can't make up my mind I re, I really can't like you can't make me choose between my children I I love them both you don't have any children <laughs> and more oh, importantly yes okay yeah yeah <laughs> more importantly you don't need to choose one or the other like what about it takes away from the other thing they they well, enhance each other you you could write JavaScript and. Don't have access to types. Right. Well, you could. Or you could write Elm. Well, that's a bold choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, do you have an opinion? There's something I want to mention, but before I do, what would you choose? I would totally choose types. I suspected as much. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, because I also said, like, I don't write that many tests. Because I, I feel like I, I, I constrain that wiggle room enough for me to not mess up too often. <laughs> but also like the, the experience between writing unit tests and types is so different because for writing unit tests you need to have a somewhat clear understanding of of the API where if if, if you if you change it you're going to have to change to update your unit tests right but also the experience of finding issues is going to be is very different for it when you have test failures versus when you have compiler errors so if you change your 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 code, your your types or your tests, uh, no, your your production code or your types, then unit tests they will just start breaking, right? They will say, hey, you've got a th this is not returning the the correct thing, or it crashes for some reason, uh, and you're gonna have to figure out yourself where the problem lies. But when you change a type, the compiler will tell you, hey, you've got a problem here, and you go fix yes. it. You got yes. a problem here, you go fix it. And so on and so on. You don't have to figure out where the problem lies. The compiler tells you. And that is just so much more useful, I think. So uh, I know you, you're going to say like, oh, you, you don't have to think too much about your API. You can change it and that's fine. But it's just like another type error. But Right. No, I mean, I, I think, yeah, th these are great points. And I, I think that in a way, I, I suspect that some of this types versus tests conversation again as i said earlier i think that often when people are dealing with type systems that aren't sound type systems mm -hmm. it they're not working with guarantees from types they're working with checks from types which feels a lot like a test a test checks one thing you run a test it checks one thing you run a you know fuzz test and it checks n things for n runs within the constraints you build up for for it to check but it's uh, it's finite, whereas types work the other way, constraining things and giving you guarantees, not checking one thing and saying, yes, that one thing does what you think. Mm -hmm. One kind of testing we haven't talked about, mm -hmm. which is writing assertions in your code. So that is something we don't have in Elm and also isn't that big in JavaScript. But I know that some ecosystems are bigger on that, maybe Rust, maybe C-like languages. Where oh you you're gonna write an assertion checking that some list is uh, non-empty for instance invariants yeah invariants but writing those in your code and if that ever if that is ever false in a specific behavior in a specific scenario then it's going to crash I guess 
but again, you need to write unit tests to to find those in your CI, right? So right, and yeah, it's interesting, but it feels like something that you know, impossible states or yeah. opaque types or these different techniques should be able to help you help you with. So yeah, so I, I think the way a lot of people are used to working with type systems, it feels more like testing um, because it's just check checking one thing rather than giving you guarantees. But when you're working with it as guarantees, it feels qualitatively different. And as you're saying, when you have tests with guarantees, tools can help you. The compiler can point you to, hey, um, here's what's wrong in this specific spot. Here's what you can do to, to fix that. Also static analysis tools. Maybe Elm Review, cross that out of your bingo card. Actually, like Elm review can infer some things from from your code. Like we we don't do much, but we it, it could potentially. But figure out things from your tests that would be interesting and a lot harder. Exactly, because it's just the whole point to me. It's it's the bare metal. Like tests are bare metal. They're this very low level thing. That's the whole point. They are not as expressive as code, and that's why they're useful. You, it's not arbitrary code. What do you mean they're not as expressive as normal code? They're not an unconstrained thing where you're writing arbitrary code. You're saying, you know, type user equals guest or admin, you know, admin details or regular user, regular user details. Like it's, um, you're not saying, oh, and if this, if this conditional checking runtime conditions, you, you look at it you look at it and you can fit it in your head all at once without imperatively running through the code and all the interactions of a complex system. That's what makes them interesting. And that's what makes them useful for tools. So static analysis tools. Optimizations as well. Um, optimizers also. Yeah, absolutely. Optimizations, IDEs. Mm -hmm. Code completion, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I just feel like we're, we're barely scratching the surface of what we can do with tools with, with constraints, with, with very strong guarantees, right? Like, you know, automatic code solvers, right? Like we, GitHub Copilot is, you know, pretty, pretty popular these days. Well, what if, what if there was something that took a completely different approach to GitHub Copilot and used its understanding of the constraints baked into the language and the types to suggest possible solutions, right? Like I, I saw a talk that was showcasing this like, you know, automatic function generator that takes like all of the values that are in scope and tries to infer like, here are 10 possible functions I can create with this that use these different values. Because this is a list and this is a function that takes a value and returns this. And then I can list.fold over this. And so here are 10 different things you could do with this. and a lot of the time, it auto-generates code that you're like, oh, yeah, that was what I wanted to do with these inputs. Tests can't really fulfill those types of possibilities. So tests are very compelling in that regard. But, you know, you can, you can, you can use tests to do a, a worse job at being a type system and checking <laughs> constraints. So... I think tests are tests are just so good, and I wish that like I wish that people in the type community would uh, embrace them a little bit more. But maybe we need to give some really good resources for how to how to do that. Yeah, to make good use of tests, you do need to be a I'm not gonna say a good developer, but you need to have some some good habits. 
yeah, some good habits. Uh, because if you don't have the habits of running a test, then you, you don't have any guarantees at all. Run, running a type, uh, type is a lot less effort, in, in my opinion. And also, one thing that is interesting to figure and to notice is that it is actually quite easy to ignore a failing unit test because you can delete the unit test, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you, you, you know, you can, with big quotes, hands, forget to write the unit test, right? But, but with a type checker, that won't be possible. So type checkers are much more general also in the sense that they will look at the whole code base. So it's going to be better to find a lot more issues, especially if you don't have good habits. Test driven development is only as good as the, the culture and the habits that mm -hmm. it's operating within. Yeah, I, I wrote a blog post a while back called Relentless Tiny Habits. I, I, I think that... I think that test-driven development is fascinating in the sense that it's not necessarily any particular one difficult skill. It's more just like, yeah, it is that simple, but you just do it <laughs> all the time and don't not do it. And it's a habit, but it's it's hard to build that habit. And and I think I think there needs to be like a mindset shift. Like I think um, when you have that mindset shift, when you see it as something that you go from thinking that it's something that slows you down to thinking that it's something that speeds you up. I think that's essential. But it, it, it's also something that you need to that you need that you need to do yourself. You need to get better, right? But also your whole team needs to do the same thing because as soon as someone doesn't uh, adhere to this philosophy that of you should write tests first of doing right TDD the right way, well then the whole system will not work as as effectively whereas one person could just add tests uh, add types and improve everyone's lives with a lot of work but yeah i mean someone can take that nice opaque type and expose the constructors and then just start oh. building it or not use the username opaque type and just start passing strings somewhere too right so am i allowed to curse again or <laughs> <laughs> There are cultural things to both, and there, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that extreme programming is heavy on test-driven development and pair programming, right? Because it's cultural, mm, yep. and it's about habits and spreading knowledge and spreading cultural ideas. And um, if, you don't, if you don't do that, then it's, it's not very useful. I still imagine that if you have a team of 10 developers who are keen on doing TDD, except two people, I feel like they will always pair together <laughs> because they, they're they going to be less annoyed by, by the other person. Like, yeah. oh yeah, you and, two, you and me make a good team because we, we don't say, oh, please write a test first. I, I think a lot of it comes down to the paradigm, like the, the lens that we, that we look through. And, and if, 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 you, if you see types as a burden, the way that you use types, if if at all, if you can avoid using them, then maybe not at all. But the way you use types will look very different. If you're writing TypeScript, you're probably going to use a lot of anys or inferred types. Also, inference apparently is a big thing. Type inference. Yeah. And pr you're probably going to just JSON.parse and get your any type and pass it around without you know using something that does sim something similar to JSON decoding in Elm, where it 
gives you guarantees about the JSON values you're getting. So, but if you perceive it as something that gives you value to to check those types and be able to work with those types giving you confidence and guarantees, it's going to change the way that you leverage types. If you're working in Elm, you're going to be making impossible states impossible and you're going to be using parts don't validate and all these things that let you get more value out of types instead of saying, oh, this is just a burden. And I think it's the same with tests. Like if you view tests as a burden and a moral responsibility, which I'm, I really don't think it's constructive to talk about these things as a moral responsibility or a professional shortcoming or something. If you don't follow these practices, in my opinion, that's just very counterproductive. To me, it's like, hey, uh, this is a tool that allows you to to work in a much more like enjoyable and safe way where you're just like flowing through your code and you don't have to keep manually testing this thing and is it working now, is it working now, is it working now? It's, it's very satisfying to be working with this auto test runner that, and you want to refactor? Oh, no problem. Let me just go and rip all like if you if you like the feeling of refactoring elm code without tests like if you have a well-tested code base that is you know nicely abstracted to have nice units that have you know uh nicely defined responsibilities that aren't heavily coupled together that feels really good so you know but but it's a paradigm shift and and a lot of people view tests as a burden and I, i think that's the hump to get over and culturally, that's that's the first step is like seeing seeing that in action. But I think a really good way to to build this up is to do it outside of production code. So you know, there's this concept of code katas, which is code that you don't ship to production, where the purpose of it is learning. So you take a simple exercise, Roman numerals, fizzbuzz, things like that, and you use all of the um, techniques that you're trying to learn. You you only do very disciplined red green refactor, and um, because when you're working in a large production system, then you can build up bad habits, and you can make you can take steps where you're actually like coupling things in a way that makes it harder to work with. When you're working on these simple problems, you can experiment and learn and develop these habits. I always feel like you, you can play with Elm codes uh, more than other languages, but yeah, absolutely. One thing that just came to my mind is that we we didn't mention compilation times um, because some languages have very long compilation times. So if you want to be if you want the type checker or the compiler to tell you, hey, there's a problem here, there's a problem there, or to to make guarantees for you, well, the, this how fast the compiler runs will impact the experience that you will have. Yes. Um, and if tests run a lot faster than, than the type checker, then yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that you will write more unit tests. In Elm's case, like both are really fast. I would say, well, the, the type checker is much faster than unit tests because the more tests you add, the slower it will run. But yeah, they're they're both fast in our case. So we're pretty unit lucky. Unit tests are quite fast. Yeah. Unit yeah, tests d- are d- quite d- fast in Elm. D- depends on how many you have. If you have 10,000, it's going to take a few seconds probably. Uh, yeah. depending on how, what you test, right? Even so, that's not so bad. So what tends to happen a lot in um, like Ruby on Rails shops is you get a lot of integration tests that are spinning up a database 
in an integration test. But there's some there's some mocking, but there's some spinning up a database, and they get very slow, and uh, that is painful because now you have you have to run a subset of your tests because you know you because it's too slow the feedback loop. But they're not giving you full confidence, and they're flaky because it's spinning up a database and sometimes gives you non-deterministic results, and sometimes it's depending on time and giving you a result based on when you run it, or worse, depending on other tests being run. Right, exactly, the order of the tests being run. And, and so you wonder why DHH says TDD is dead, right? It's not, not okay. a big surprise. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. I feel like we have done a pretty good round of it. We have done other episodes on testing opaque types. I actually wonder, did we have, did we say opaque types enough? Have we hit our quota or should we say it a few more times? I'm not sure. We could, we could always say it a little bit more. But if you haven't listened to our opaque types episode, as we've said, mandatory listening. That, that, should, that should have been episode number one of Elm Radio. That should have been our most um, listened to episode. <laughs> it actually isn't. So yeah, that's that's true. That's true. We'll keep pestering people until it becomes our number one listened to episode. If people want to remember to subscribe to our podcast, some people are not subscribed and getting every episode. Subscribe in your podcast feed. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and uh, follow us on Twitter and Yarun. Until next time. Until next time.